Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, traffic nightmare. Another truck hits an overpass, this time at Highway 17A and Highway 99. We look into the 19th bridge strike since 2021. Plus, Delta's police chief pens an open letter addressing the province's drug decriminalization plan. We talked to an addiction expert at SFU to see if the chief's comments are grounded in fact. And forget the province's announcement on Surrey policing on Wednesday. Did Ottawa already kill the idea of keeping the RCMP? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Based on rough math I've done, this is the 19th time a bridge or overpass has been struck on provincial highways since late 2021. Why is this happen- happening? Is it a lack of training and not enough penalties? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Gagan Singh from the United Truckers Association. Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, have, what are you hearing uh, so far in regards to this accident? Uh, I heard from my own container trucker folks that there is an accident that happened on Highway 99 and lots of traffic has been blocked and there there were very long delays due to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, since we do represent only container truckers, Mm -hmm. but the way that these happens are going on and on about these all these dump trucks or excavators, so I think our government needs to work on really uh, hard on it even though i don't know for what they are waiting for are they waiting for the big damage to any general public but in all instances the good thing is that in the past accidents there's no no big losses for the life mm-hmm. but it may be the it may be in future something may happen about it mm-hmm. but if we see that how much the damage is done to the general public property that's that's not all, not also a small thing. Mm-hmm. Even though, if we see that how the governments are working on the bridges, the, we we already lack for the infrastructure. Yeah, Mr. Singh, if, uh, if I, these, uh, sorry, I, I'm just curious. When people hear this, they're going to go, "Why does this keep happening? Is it a lack of training? Is it a lack of?" accountability that the government um, isn't penalizing enough is it the fact that the industry isn't uh, training individuals properly uh, what do you think is causing this uh, to me for example if I have a class one license today if I want to go for to drive to drive a dump truck or any excavator I don't need to have any and I, I don't need to join any kind of training or something like that what normally the what folks do is that they say, okay, join the training guy just only for a day or two or three days, and that's it. And I think there's a lack of proper training too. It's not only moreover training once or once in a life, but I think there must be ongoing trainings, even though whenever uh, folks are less are lesser busy, like in the winter days or the snowy days when people don't have enough work. So there may be spent of some sort of training programs, mm-hmm. which we are totally lacking at this point. 
is there pressure to carry more of a load? Is there pressure in regards to timing that forces truck drivers to perhaps uh, not properly measure loads and, and plan their trips? I mean, how much of this is, uh, and I don't want to make any excuses for anybody. I'm not a truck driver here, but there's, is there pressure to meet time? Is there mm-hmm. pressure uh, to, yeah. to carry more? Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering because everything with supply chains th- these days and anything in life is get it there fast, get it there now. How much a role do you think that is playing in some of these cases where these overpasses are being hit? Because I think we're up to like 19 or 20 since 2021. Mr. Jewell, you are right that, uh, first of all, if we see that about the overload loading thing, uh, that's not in control of the drivers. They, they're not aware that how much load do they have. If we see the traffic uh, scenarios or the way that traffic is going on, there are lots of congestions on the road. Yes, there are too much peer pressures on the drivers mm-hmm. that they made the mistake. But the overload thing haven't been resolved. And even though you were talking about penalizing, the biggest concern is that no one is penalizing the trop- the problem creator. The folks who load the truck, they are the ones who overload it. Drivers don't have any control to that. Whatever they got, they have to do that. And even though, as per you mentioned about the timelines, yes, you're right. They have to meet that. If they don't meet, then obviously some of the folks are hourly based, some are trip based, but in Total, generally, if we evaluate all these together, I think there must be a kind of volunteer training, at least, to all those folks, so that in rather than to penalize someone, there may be some sort of training. If we see, as you, yeah, as you have mentioned before, that 20 incidents happens in the last few years, and still no, the lack of training, this is not a small thing. Mm-hmm. It's a huge big thing. Uh, how much of this is also now? Before I actually go to the next question, I do want to ask you this: that there is a melt program, to my understanding, a mandatory entry uh, entry level training, which is approved by ICBC. Is, does that still continue? I'm I'm going to assume. And they're mandated uh, no, to take. No, actually, it? melt. No, melt is for the new drivers. It's not only only for let's say. If I have, uh, I I take my first license, uh, my class one license back in 2012, 2012 mm-hmm. but uh, still after that, I'm not mandatory. That that's for the new folks. So, do you think but, some older drivers problem, need need some of this, the mandatory entry level training as well? Even though they've been driving for many years, they may be experienced, but because of these accidents, do you think something like that? should occur? I mean, if we're offering it to young, new drivers, perhaps shouldn't older drivers? I'm not saying they're not experienced, but should they not be taking that course as well? I think, it, no, that will be a big penalty for the folks because if we see the economy nowadays, it's still hard for the folks to run their families. But you're right, there must be some sort of like volunteer training by the government. It, like, it won't take too long. Mm-hmm. It's just only the simple training manuals as like bigger companies, they do have. But the lack of training programs, that's a problem. Once all companies have some sort of training programs, and so then obviously everything may be sorted out. For for simple example, the overloading thing, if there's no control over the overloading, then what the training will help? 
if the truck is fully overloaded, they're not good tires, though, then there's no way that training may solve about it. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think at least there may be some sort of training by government. They may give some sort of ticketing stuff, like if you want to be a professional dump truck driver, they may offer like one-day course, two-day course, like the taxi host, which used to be in for the taxi industry, and it used to be only for a couple of days. There are a lot. There are so many good drivers in the industry. If we see that average, that how many accidents are happening rather than of the total number, so that's way too different than that. How much of is this the government uh, not holding people accountable? Uh, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, having enough penalties written in the books that there be significant enough, uh, uh, you know, significantly impact people to say, wait a minute here, we really have to watch what we're doing because there are going to be significant penalties. How much of this is just the government not imposing enough tougher penalties on people or companies to send a message to them? You're right, and even though, because uh, the the penalty thing is, uh, before they penalize someone, they they are under radar too. That even though after that after that number of accidents, they haven't done anything. Um, and um, and instead of penalties, I do support for that. But the training programs there should be much for that. <laughs> If you want to operate a forklift light, a forklift in the warehouse, mm-hmm. you need to have a ticket for that, and it takes only one day or two days training. So I think there must be some sort of volunteer training by, by the government or by BCTA, or we will volunteer about it. Uh, I do promise with your listeners that from now onwards, even though our main primarily uh, area is just only container trucking, mm-hmm. but after these much accidents, and we are very lucky that there's no big loss of the lives, but still in order to avoid everything, we will start working on it. We will write to the Minister of Transportation at, and to BC Trucking Association, and since the biggest concern is that there's a proper lack of trucking associations. There's no proper. There used to be a one small trucking association for the gravel trucks, but I haven't seen them anymore from last many many years. So it's it's kind so of. So I it's haven't kind of, seen any. It's broken up. I mean, there's different associations, as you say, but I mean, there's. For me, it just seems that okay. Most people go to work. They don't want to cause trouble for anybody else. They want to go out and do a good job. But the fact that we got overpasses being hit, the fact that we are now shutting down uh, major intersections, which is inconveniencing people uh, during rush hour, as you and I both speak, uh, the fact that there might be structural damage to overpasses, which could be uh, cost significant amount of dollars for taxpayers. And ultimately, there is an incredible threat to life. And we've been fortunate, you're right. But this cannot continue at the end of the day. This is going on and on and on. And like I said, since 2021, uh, we've had a myriad of these and, and, and they're not acceptable. So I appreciate you and your organization um, being proactive, but a lot of it's at the ultimately the, the rules and the guidance comes from government, and where I, that's where I think it's been failing. We've been failing. You're, you're totally right. They need to have some sort of at least a volunteer training for one day, at least just some simple things, and CVSE may do that. Government have, have the complete commercial vehicle safety program about them. 
their safety officers may engage the, the dump truck community so that they may educate them. It's not about penalties, it's about the education. And after that much accident, I'm repeating again, my apologies, but I'm, the only bigger concern is that there's a big lack of proper training. Without training, what, what you can do? Mm-hmm. Mr. Singh, thank you Instead so much. Instead of penalties. I'll let you finish your thoughts. Go ahead. Uh, I'm again repeating. Instead of penalties, there must be good training for everyone for the safer roads. And that's what all we needed. Mr. Singh, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's my pleasure to have a chat with you. Thanks. Another breaking story for today, of course, is that a commercial truck uh, uh, struck the Highway 17A overpass on Highway 99 southbound in Delta shortly after 12 o'clock today. Uh, My back of the napkin napkin math tells me that's the 19th time a bridge overpass has been struck on provincial highways since late 2021. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about today's incidents and the broader broader, uh, issue in and around truck safety is Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, your reaction uh, to today's um, uh, to, to today's event? Uh, just so frustrated, Jess. I mean, as you say, uh, this is another overpass hit, and it is so frustrating uh, for everybody, for the thousands of motorists that are on the road, and for all our members and all the commercial drivers that are having their days disrupted because of this. Um, I, I, I just think that's the best word to use is frustrated. Mm-hmm. Now, why is this happening in your mind? Is it a lack of training? Uh, is it a lack of penalties? Is it a lack of um, need, the need for higher penalties? Why in your mind is this happening? You know, Jazz, I, th- I think the answer is yes. Hmm. Um, you know, when we talk about this, it, it's what's going on. I, I don't think these are situations where, you know, uh, you know certainly the, the previous hits are not situations where individuals have measured and made a mistake or tried to take a shortcut. They just didn't know. Um, so does that speak to training? Does that speak to rushing? Um, does that speak to, you know, unreasonable customer, uh, you know, demands on time? Um, does it speak to not having, you know, sufficient safety practices in place? Um, yeah, I think it does. I mean, because the bottom line is when that driver uh, gets behind the wheel, they must know the dimensions of their load and how to move it safely. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Does a truck driver load the truck? I mean, when you're leaving a facility or when it's getting loaded, can you just, I, I know it's, it can be very complicated, but in, in, in layman's mm-hmm. terms, explain you know, who loads this, the, the stuff on or the, 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 the equipment, whatever it may be, uh, who measures or says, look, here's the, here's the route, here's what is required yep. when it comes to safety. Can you just walk me through the process in a simple way here? Sure, Jazz. And I mean, the, the simple answer is it, is it varies. Um, there may be certain times where the driver is there and is actively involved. There may be times that they're not, where they're simply backing into a trailer that's been preloaded. Um, they may be moving and working for a company that owns all the equipment, so owns the equipment being moved and owns the truck and the low bed. Um, or they may be a for-hire carrier where they're being contracted to move a piece of equipment. Um, but ultimately, it is the driver's responsibility to make sure they know the dimensions of their load. If it's over 4.15 meters, 4.15, um, they have to apply for an overheight permit, full stop. Um, you go online, you call the permit center, you do your route planning, 
and off you go. Um, that requirement hasn't changed in decades. It's not new. Um, it's consistent. And I am mystified uh, as to why we keep seeing this happen. Would higher penalties help in reducing or eliminating this problem that we have? I, I don't know, Jess. I, I, I really don't because I don't know that there's anybody sitting back and looking at it and saying, well, you know, it's only going to be, we'll, we'll, we'll take the risk. It'll only be this and that. Um, so we'll take the risk. I don't think that's happening. Um, this is much more about education and much more about uh, making sure that the people making the decisions on the ground are making the right ones. Um, you know, having higher consequences for those individuals making bad decisions, um, that's not going to hurt. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the game changer that I wish it were. Um, but certainly that, that wouldn't hurt. How much responsibility do you put on, the, on a provincial government in IA training or on penalties, whatever it may be, but you know, ultimately they're the senior level of government. How much responsibility does Victoria bear in incidents like today? You know, they have a hard time putting a lot of blame at their feet. I mean, ultimately, again, um, they, the you know, government has responded by you know enacting uh, regulation to make sure that we have mandatory entry level training for drivers in this province. Um, yes, we could have better enforcement. Sure. Uh, yes, we could have better fines on higher fines. Absolutely. But ultimately, it comes down to the customer and it comes down to the driver. Uh, it comes down to the carrier. It comes down to the people that are actually moving the equipment, those people that can make the decisions in the moment and need to make the right ones. Um, that's where the responsibility lies, and that's where we have to concentrate our efforts. Hmm. Uh, why does BC seem to have this issue and other jurisdictions don't? Certainly not to the significance that other jurisdictions seem not to have. Why is, it a, yeah, why is think, this a BC issue? Yeah, I think part of it, Jazz, is our infrastructure deficit. Uh, when you look at the infrastructure we have, particularly around our freeways in the lower mainland, they were all constructed, you know, 55, 67, well, not quite 70 years, but 50 or 60 years ago. Um, trucks were smaller, loads were smaller. And you're dealing with an issue when somebody's putting this on the back of a truck, they should know the requirements. They should make the effort. They should make those measurements. But have they moved elsewhere where it wasn't a problem, where overpasses, and you see the new construction that we have where overpasses are five meters or more in height, um, you know, is that happening? So where you see these things happen by and large are with the older infrastructure because it's smaller. There's no excuse. You know, you, you can't say, gee whiz, that bridge moved. What a surprise. Um, it didn't. It's been there for decades. Um, but I think we may be seeing just the hangover of our failure to invest in infrastructure collectively for decades. Um, it's going to get better as we build out, but it's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Dave, I really thank you for your time. Appreciate you. I know you have a very, very busy day today. I appreciate you making time for our audience. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Jeff. Thanks for having me. We have learned that about 4.30 pickets went up again at BC Port uh, because longshoremen, uh, which we were expecting, would ratify the tentative agreement that they had uh, agreed upon with the, the port. Now it turns out uh, the union or its caucus decided, no, uh, that's not good enough. And now picket lines, we are told, are up as of 4.30, so about nine minutes ago. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what all this means is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Keith, thank you for joining us. 
Good to be here, Jazz. Well, uh, I had heard word yesterday about rumors that this something may occur. Looks like this is not a done deal. A source of mine texted me last night, and I thought, well, I hope he's wrong. And uh, and here we are. It's 4.30, and uh, I'm told the picket lines uh, are up. And uh, what the heck happened, Keith? <laughs> well, we've got we've got dueling news releases from the union, which a rather short one, a longer one from the employer. So the membership did not vote on the offer. <clears throat> the union has something called the Longshore Caucus. Hmm. Uh, which is the, sort of a leadership caucus, uh, rejected it, even though the negotiators had accepted the mediators' imposed settlement. There's, there's what I assume to be a broader or larger number of people in, in a sort of an elevated bargaining structure have said no. The union's uh, press release says they rejected because there was not enough job protection uh, and not enough protection for their jurisdiction of jobs, uh, not enough uh, of a wage increase to cover the cost of living. Uh, the term, which is four years, in their words, is, quote, far too long. The union had been looking for a two-year term. Uh, the company's news release counters that they had made movement at the, um, in the, mesh, in the um, uh, mediated settlement uh, to regarding contracting outwork uh, and a beef-up of uh, for part-time staff, specifically agreeing to provide full benefit coverage for all casual trade workers, a tool allowance, and a commitment to increase apprentices in the industry by 15%. So that information is kind of new. But clearly the union leadership caucus did not feel the the, impo- the mediated settlement, terms of settlement, did not meet what they were looking for when it came to job protection, wage increases, and term. Keep in mind, the union, before the mediator stepped in, was looking for 17% wage increase over two years, plus an $8,000 bonus, or inflation adjustment allowance, as they called it. The employer was offering 14% over four years and was suggesting they send the contentious issue of uh, maintenance jurisdiction out to an arbitration um, process involving a subcommittee. So I think uh, everybody thought because the union leadership had, rege- had uh, recommended acceptance, it's, it's kind of rare for the for either the membership or the next level of leadership to reject what the negotiators were, were accepting. So you don't see that very mm-hmm. often. In many, many unions, the negotiators are expected to resign. I'm not sure that's going to happen here. But now, I assume the stage is set. Dust off your desks in Parliament Hill because I think this is going to probably move to Ottawa, and all eyes are on Ottawa now whether Parliament will be recalled and end this thing through legislation. A huge sigh of relief when when the mediator came in, and surprisingly, both sides accepted. And one assumed, oh, that was it. It was going to take you know weeks to clear the backlog. Now we're back to square one. Uh, and you said the, the union wanted a two-year agreement, even though the employers wanted a, f- a four-year agreement. Now, in those four years, I'm told, so the wage hike compounded is 19.2% over those four years. So uh, in this day and age, that's 5% in each of the first two years, followed by an increase of 4% in each mm-hmm. of the final two years. But compounded, it comes out to 19.2%. Uh, and somehow this is viewed as not good enough. I mean, uh, I don't think they're going to win any uh, awards for um, winning over public sentiment here. I mean, that seems no. like a, a reasonable wage increase this day and age. I don't think the union is really interested in where the public lands on this, and that was evident in their, um, I think, in their protest rallies. It was all, you know, very militant, not caring where the public uh, is at. I think, and you and I talked about this before, one of the factors hovering over this dispute is the longshoreman dispute recently ended on the west coast of the United States, where the union there got a 32% wage increase, but over six years, and access to a $70 million bonus fund. So they got a big bonus, 
We don't know exactly how much on an individual basis, and uh, basically increasing their wages by one third over six years, which is one of the biggest settlements in you know decades. So, and I think that was driving what the union was looking for north of the border as well, but a shorter term. They don't, you know they want a two-year deal, and basically an average of nine percent a year plus this big signing bonus. And the employer just wasn't going to go there, and it's not going to be part of an imposed settlement from Ottawa. I can tell you that. Uh, we we the 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 federal parliament is of course out for the summer. So what happens here now? Is it just to- well? They'd have to call the house back. I think some of that could be done um, through Zoom. I think the standing orders are still like the existing provincial legislature. They haven't changed, so not everyone's required to be there. Um, the Liberals have been reluctant to call the House back because it gives the opposition a platform and a bit of leverage to do other things when the House is in session, like dust off old issues that the government may not want to talk about, like foreign interference in elections, for example, or that you know, um, an independent inquiry. The issues that have gone silent for a while suddenly come to the surface when the House is back in session, albeit in the middle of the summer, so I don't think a lot of public attention will be paid to it. But um, the feds thought they had dodged a big bullet here with the the senior mediator, um, Peter Simpson, um, bringing in recommendations of, for settlement that the union leadership accepted, but the broader leadership caucus is rejected, and it has yet to go to the membership for a vote. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Keith, thank you so much. All right, take care. For the last few days, uh, I've been uh, just, you know, watching the news and listening uh, to a variety of stories. And uh, the Squamish Nation has been signing protocol agreements with the city of Vancouver, uh, city of Squamish. Uh, and it's quite interesting. And as I was listening to these protocol agreements, I said, you know, I got to talk to uh, folks over there at the Squamish Nation and get a sense of what it all means, these protocol agreements. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, these agreements is Hale Salem. He's a Squamish Nation Council Chair. Hale Salem, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I think it's important we have this conversation because obviously lots lots going on in the news, but you know these types of agreements can have a significant a- impact uh, beyond uh, headlines uh, uh, in, on any given day. Walk me through what your council and you have been doing over the last few days in regards to these these protocol agreements. You know, signing them with Squamish and in Vancouver as well. Yeah, we've signed three protocol agreements with. Um three municipal governments that uh, operate within Squamish Nation territory. Squamish Nation has about 18 local governments overall that operate within our territory. And, you know, over a number of decades and years, we've we've been working on building a positive relationship with these governments. But the protocol agreements is really an articulation of um, how we want to work together, what we want to work on, how we can support each other in sort of goals or aspirations that we might have. And the world has changed, you know, 20, 30 years ago, municipal governments didn't really see themselves as having any responsibility to work with First Nations, but the world has changed. And so we've been building a lot of positive relationships as a result. Uh, what types of things would you work with these cities on? Is it a question of the important things, but very, you know, the things that aren't very sexy? It could be, you know, sewer and, and those kind of things that are very important for infrastructure uh, and water and those types of things. Or is it other things as well? Like, what kind of things would you be working together in conjunction on? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of issues that might not be front and center of people's minds, but do start to impact, uh, you know, the interests of the Squamish Nation. You know, when, when municipalities are engaging in new infrastructure projects, whether it's utilities or new development, um, you know, there's opportunities to really work with the Squamish Nation, like, say, for example, on archaeological 
research or archaeological surveys of the site. A lot of the lower mainland, you know, obviously has a lot of history of uh, First Nations uh, occupation and archaeological history. And so there might be projects like that where we want to make sure that our staff and our technicians are involved in some of those projects. But also there's a number of other things. You know, we have a, an emerging workforce within our community. Um, we have a, a lot of uh, challenges in terms of raising the level of income of First Nations community members. And so we see opportunities for employment and training, mentorship, um, uh, procurement for small businesses within Squamish Nation community members. All of those things, I think, you know, there's opportunities to partner and, and tie in uh, these opportunities together. So it, it ranges from very small things to very big things. Uh, can one community uh, tell the other community, or I say could tell them, but could they have any impact on a, on, a, on, a, on a community's decision to move forward on, let's say, a housing project? And say, look, we find, while it is in your territory, it's a little too big because we may have traffic issues, we may have other issues. Uh, can they, will, could they have any say, or is it more so just uh, issues that are outside of that jurisdiction? Yeah, I mean, the interest, the reason that we, like, why we're doing these protocol agreements is, you know, when British Columbia was created and a lot of the municipal governments were created by provincial law, there wasn't really a lot of consideration at the time around First Nations interests. And, you know, since then, we've had uh, a constitution created in Canada that recognizes Aboriginal rights. We've had legislation passed that starts to recognize Aboriginal rights. And we've also had courts who have acknowledged the existence of Aboriginal rights. And so, all of those things have changed the context and the need for governments to listen and work and collaborate with First Nations. Otherwise, First Nations can stall things. We can hold up development. We can hold up projects. We can delay things. We can add um, significant cost because the law of this country is that there's uh, a recognition of Indigenous rights and that uh, government and industry has to uphold those rights. So instead of relying on the courts to settle disputes and instead of fighting with each other, um, which has been sort of the story for so long, we really see an opportunity to work together so that we don't have to go to court to fight over things, that we can actually be involved at an early stage. Um, this would allow for uh, development to happen. This could allow for industry to develop to, to happen. It could also allow for projects to move at a much uh, more efficient or quick pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and by partnering with First Nations, we can actually facilitate a lot of growth, a lot of economic development, a lot of um, community development. Uh, could that mean uh, you get to a point where you have non-First Nations members living on your territory for for housing developments and that, that sort of thing? And there could be potential conversations about a community centre or or those types of things. I mean, those are the things that, I mean, I know where I live in Tawasin, you have a significant amount of development in and around a shopping mall, but behind that shopping mall is a significant amount of housing that's getting built. Um, but at the same time, those very people moving there may be using community centres in Delta uh, instead of in their own communities. Uh, is there ever an opportunity you see potentially for sharing some tax, uh, some tax revenue because there is overlap in between municipalities and, and First Nations? Yeah, I, I think that that's part of the emerging conversation that's happening as First Nations start to utilize uh, the value of their lands. Um, what we've been very proud of um, with the Squamish Nation is that when we've approach those types of conversations, what we've negotiated is a very fair kind of fair market value uh, exchange where we purchase, you know, we come up with a contract basically where we purchase services from the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Um, But we as a nation collect the property taxes, 
because we have the authority under federal uh, law to collect property taxes on our lands. And then what happens is we collect the property taxes from our own lands. Mm -hmm. We work out a contract with the municipal government to buy services for them. And we use a portion of the, uh, you know, significant portion, but a portion of the revenue we collect off taxes to pay for the services. And so really it comes down to what's negotiated within those agreements and whether it's community centers, libraries, police, um, other types of municipal services that are typically provided um, off reserve, um, we just buy those. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, the the municipal government is collecting revenue from us. It's just a unique arrangement where we're sort of operating as a customer uh, on behalf of the residents of our community and paying for those services. And what's been really exciting is that we were able to, you know, negotiate those contracts so that they're based off of fair value, reasonable costs, and reasonable uh, charges. I recall, uh, uh, going back to the Tawasan First Nation for a moment, covering stories in the early 90s where they were trying to build a condo development and required the uh, the sewage system from uh, Delta, and there was much acrimony, and they ended up building their own. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of acrimony in regards to just uh, the building and uh, that they put up. Uh, and now today you're seeing a much better relationship and, and, and a great development that they put up in Tawasan uh, for their community, mm. which builds an economic base. But it, we sometimes forget that you know, 20 years ago, I was covering protests in that very community or protests against that community, probably 25 years now. Uh, and today they've built a, you know, it's the first urban treaty that's been signed in uh, in British Columbia. And they've built a really strong economic base for their community and continue to build. But it's hard to, it's not, we forget that it's only been 20, 25 years ago where the relationship had significant, there's a lot more acrimony back then compared to today, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the. I think there's been a lot of transformation in our country in a positive way that mm-hmm. there's been a better understanding of the experiences, the lives, you know, lived experiences of First Nations communities, uh, a recognition of, of the current challenges we face, but also, I think, fundamentally, a, a recognition that uh, we as First Nations you know, we're part of this country, we're, we're a foundational part of this country, um, and we have a lot of value to add to these big giant problems that we're facing as a society. And so instead of viewing First Nations as a as a, an adversary or as an enemy, we can actually work together to achieve some sort of benefit for both our communities. And so I think there's been a huge transfer, transformation in attitude and opinion mm-hmm. um, that's allowed for us to now sort of see eye to eye and work together towards some really positive things. And, you know, I look at, say, for example, the housing issue that we're dealing with uh, throughout the province and the country and the ability for First Nations to, to deliver on um, delivering a lot of housing quickly. Um, that's a huge benefit that we can bring to the table, um, but also our ability to bring workers and uh, small businesses um, and, you know, add value to these things. So I think there's just a recognition that we can accomplish more by working together, and, and we're demonstrating that time and time again, and, and I think that's what's exciting for, for everybody. Halsey thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.